Good morning again. Thanks, Leila, so much for the prayer. It's good to be with you. We are going to continue this teaching series through the Psalms. And and this is our final stop um, along our journey. And and today we're going to take a deeper look at Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 23, for many of you, uh, would be a psalm that holds significance in your life. Um, This is a psalm that has uh, been memorized by children for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This is a psalm that has been read um, at the bed of loved ones who are passing away. This psalm is significant. It's perhaps one of the most famous literary pieces of all time. And I'm really, I'm really stoked that we get to go a little bit deeper this morning. And my hope for you is that you find even greater significance from Psalm 23. And so let's read together. I'm going to read out of the New International Version. And so if you can find a Bible around you, Bible app, if not, the words will be on the screen for you to follow. And so let's read Psalm 23 together. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, As we move forward, we're going to notice that Psalm 23, it upholds three images of God, three images of Yahweh, that of God as shepherd, God as guide, and God as host. And we're going to parse out the beauty and the power of these images in this psalm. And my hope is that these three images, they serve as reminders for you but also there would be fresh revelation for you this morning. But before we jump in, would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for Psalm 23. Thank you that Psalm 23 um, is just powerful, sacred words that you have used to comfort and minister to believers for thousands of years. Thank you that your word stands the test of time. Thank you that as we sit here this morning, we can be saturated by the beauty of this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So first things first, we're going to look at God as the good shepherd. God as the good shepherd. And so many of you would know, this isn't, this isn't news to you, shepherding or sheep 
herding. It's one of the oldest existing occupations. It has, in antiquity, there is tons of work on what shepherding was and continues to be. It's a, it was a hugely common job in the world of the Old Testament. And so that's why this image is being used. And um, when we read this, uh, we also think of what a bad shepherd would look like. They would neglect their sheep, lead them astray into malnourishment, subject them to danger. A good shepherd is attentive to their sheep, providing them with plentiful pasture, good water, and tender care. God is referred to as the shepherd who provides. And this metaphor, it's so rich. It resonates with us still to this day, even though we don't really have much of a modern concept of what shepherding looks like. It's somewhat foreign to most of us. For this reason, though, for this metaphor, Psalm 23, it's often known as the shepherd's psalm. The shepherd's psalm. Yet, those of you who have read through your Bible, you would know that this isn't the only time that God has been referred to as shepherd. There are many different times, just to name a few. Psalm 28, Genesis 49, Isaiah 40. Uh, God is referred to as shepherd and his people referred to as sheep. In Psalm uh, 120, God is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. And it's this psalm that's echoing the Israelite experience uh, of the exodus and journeying through the wilderness, guided by the shepherd of Israel. And so this passage is not unique in its language about God being shepherd. Yet, Craig Broyles, who is uh, a commentator who I've been going back to on this psalm time and time again, he says this, the distinctive word of this psalm is not shepherd, but my. Elsewhere, Yahweh is the shepherd of his people, but here, he is the shepherd of the individual. God tends to a large flock, yet he is still your shepherd, the shepherd of the individual. And the psalmist, in this first verse, we're just one verse in, expresses this deep and profound trust and contentment with being under God's care. There's a security in it. Their deepest longings are met by God. A sheep personally, individually tended to by their shepherd, lacks completely nothing. So the shepherd heart of God, it's given complete representation in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus, he's having a conversation with the Pharisees in John 10. Uh, he could tell the Pharisees they're having this difficult time as they usually do, really comprehending what Jesus is teaching and saying to them. And so Jesus often got creative. He would use metaphors and stories to try and communicate to the Pharisees who had been so boxed in their ways what Jesus' mission and vision for humanity is. And this is what he says. He says to them, I and the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so what he's inferring is that the bad shepherd 
compromises the sheep for their own game. It's exactly what the Pharisees were up to all along. And he says again, I'm the good shepherd. He repeats himself to the Pharisees. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. The bad shepherd doesn't recognize the needs of the sheep, doesn't know them by name, doesn't know one from the other, fails to understand their behavior. And so how amazing is it? I want you to really sit on this for a second. How amazing is it to intimately know and be known by the good shepherd? So as we move forward, we see this image again, that the good shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. What a beautiful, stunning image. There's almost this insistence here, isn't there? He makes us lie down in green pastures. So even when we're busy and bustling, our schedules are full, we're running around, we tire ourselves out so easily, God makes us rest. There's insistence there. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He did it himself. He set the standard on the seventh day, implementing Sabbath. He makes us lie down in green pastures. And so I want you to think about for a sec, where is the place that you go for rest? Maybe it's a place you can picture in your mind right now. Maybe it's a place that you've been time and time again. Maybe it's somewhere close by that you go to continually for a moment of rest. Uh, While I was living in Hawaii, I had such a place. Uh, It was out in the hills, and my friends and I, we would go to this small town called Waimea in Hawaiian ranch land. Um, And we would hike around the town and through the the hills of the big island of Hawaii. And uh, I found this place that I often go in my mind just for a moment of rest. It was out in the hills, and it looked exactly like if I could uh, just picture the green pastures that Psalm 23 and the psalmist is communicating. It would look something like this. And so if you see up there, there's the hills and the trees and there's brush and those little dots, those are sheep. And so I would um, go out of my way to just go and lie down in the grass. And as I would lie down in the grass on the hill, I would repeat to myself Psalm 23 in my mind. It was a moment of deep, deep rest. So I would just encourage you, is there a moment or a place of deep rest for you? Green pastures. The good shepherd. Make sure there is plenty of green pasture for the sheep to find rest. As we go on, the good shepherd leads us beside quiet waters. Um, In Numbers 10, we see that throughout the wilderness journey, uh, the Ark of the Covenant leading the way uh, would go before the Israelites and would find a place for them to rest. And we almost see that image here as well. The good shepherd goes ahead of the sheep to find a place for them to rest, quiet waters. And so a commentator named Charles Briggs 
points out something super interesting. He notes that the quiet waters, it may be a stream. Some, some of you in your translations, it might say quiet streams. It may be a stream, but could also be thinking of the wells or fountains from which flocks uh, were usually watered and hydrated. Shepherds would lead them to these fountains, these deep wells. And so these, these waters are not merely just drinking water. They're choice water, the best water, not just satisfying thirst, but giving a deeper sense of refreshment, implying the same kind of provision for the sheep. It's the green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters for our refreshment. God, as good shepherd, refreshes us, not just physical refreshment either. We read that God refreshes our soul. And the common Hebrew understanding of the soul during this time was that it was the primary seat of our appetites and our desires. And so when the psalmist write, writes that he, he refreshes our soul, he's kind of saying God is the only one as good shepherd who can bring refreshment and satisfaction to the place of our innermost desires. That he meets those core needs in our lives. That's why he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. God is the good shepherd. He leads us to plentiful pastures for us to rest. He leads us to quiet waters, deep wells that we get to draw from, not just for physical refreshment, but for the refreshment of our souls. Next thing, God is our guide. God is our good guide. Um, it was 7 a.m. in a remote village in the Amazon River. And I was woken up by a Brazilian man named Wellington. His name was Wellington, I think. And he slaps me across the face. Um, and I wake up startled, and he says, it's time to go, it's time to go. Brother Reese, get up, get up, it's time to go. And so here I am lying in my hammock. I've just been slapped by this man, uh, one of the rudest ways you can be woken up. And he says, Brother Reese, it's time to go, it's time to go. And, and so I, I get up in a daze out of my hammock, kind of slipping, stumbling out, and um, I, I, I try and figure out what's going on. And he says, Brother, we're going to go pick acai. Acai. Has anyone here ever had an acai bowl or, or something? It's, it's, one of, it's known as one of the super, super foods. You know, it's, it's extremely healthy. And, um, you know, most acai comes from Brazil. And so uh, a major occupation for Brazilians living in the Amazon is to go uh, climb up trees and bring down large bushes of acai and process them, send them out in baskets along the river, and then they get to booster juice. Um, and so here I am, I'm slapped in the face, we're going to pick acai, I have no idea what's going on. Um, and so I throw on my sandals, I get changed, and um, I go out with a few men to go participate in picking acai. Just some context here, I was, I was down there as an 18-year-old on a three-month missions trip along the Amazon River. And we were, we were staying with locals along the Amazon, and 
something that they loved to do with us was just take us along regular life. And so here I am uh, picking acai. So we head out into the jungle. Um, and about 10 minutes in, I noticed that we're, we're really starting to walk through muck. Um, my sandals are kind of sticking. And you know, if you've walked through heavy sand or muck, that your sandals kind of pick that up and they get heavier and heavier as you walk along. And so I continued to walk in my sandals and then all of a sudden they snap. Boom, almost both at the same time. Um, and the, the men who, who were with me, these Brazilian men, they just looked behind me and they kind of just looked down at my feet and they just shrugged their shoulders and they kept walking. And so I thought, I'm in the middle of, the, I, I have no choice but to keep walking barefoot in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And so uh, as I'm walking, my feet are um, sinking beneath uh, branches and leaves into this unknown territory uh, on the bed of the rainforest where uh, I have no idea what kind of wicked uh, animals would be dwelling, you know, spiders, snakes. Um, and so my heart's pounding. I'm walking through the rainforest. And uh, all of a sudden, the men just begin to murmur to themselves a little bit. And they kind of look around, you know, frowning. Um, and I ask, what's, what's going on? It, uh, what's next? You know, and, and they say, we don't know where we are. Um, and I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. I'm bare feet. I'm in the middle of the Amazon jungle um, picking acai. And we have no idea where we are. And so for the next four hours, we walked around the Amazon trying to find some sort of a landmark or something that we can navigate um, ourselves by. And eventually, after four hours, one of the men steps down and he goes, oh, and he picks up my broken, muddy sandal. He says, I know where we are. <laughs> and then 10 minutes, we're back home with a bundle of acai. I remember in that moment, I was just thinking, oh, it is so nice when there is someone who knows where we're going. Uh, and so I think of this story when I think of God as the good guide in Psalm 23. He's not just the good shepherd. He's the good guide. He's a good leader. This is what, this is what the psalmist writes. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Again, we find parallels here with the Exodus. God's deliverance and guidance often went hand in hand with recognition of his good work. And we often saw fallout in relationship when the Israelites were delivered by God and guided by God, but then would go ahead and build a golden calf or attribute that success to something else. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake, God is trusted as shepherd and guide to lead us, not along dangerous paths, but along the right path. And I love the confidence in which the next few sentences are written as you look in Psalm 23. This is what it says. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, some translations might say the valley of shadow and death. Woo! I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David, the psalmist, is convinced of God's presence in all circumstances, in all environments. He knows there's no giant from his personal experience bigger than his God. And so in affliction, he's comforted by God's dependability. And I know many of us have been there as well. 
But where does this strong language come from? The darkest valley or the valley of shadow and death. And so in, in, in the world of the Old Testament believer in Israel, the hill country in Israel and Judah, it's broken up by these narrow ravines that would snake and slither their way through the valleys. And they were really difficult to descend and ascend. Uh, they were dark. They were gloomy. They were filled with brush and foliage that were difficult to navigate. And so to pass through these ravines would mean that you would subject yourself to danger, not only from the elements, the, the natural uh, danger, but also you've got wild beasts in caves and you've got robbers who are uh, who are making their homes in these dens, just waiting for lost travelers to make their, cell, make, uh, their way through these dark and gloomy ravines. And so, uh, Jeremiah 2.6, uh, the wilderness through which Israel was led uh, after the exodus out of Egypt is described as a land of shadow and death. Yet, even through this kind of path, there's no fear because the good guide goes ahead. The guide's equipped with rod and staff. I love how the theologian Charles Briggs puts it. He says, the presence of the guide with rod and staff in hand, ready to use in his defense, assures him of safety, of true guidance, and of eventually reaching his destination. Any tendencies to fear are at once checked. Any agitation or anxiety is soothed and calmed. And so we have a guide, a good guide, a leader whose perfect love and commitment to his companions casts out any fear or trepidation. And so, again, God as our guide is given complete representation through the person of Jesus Christ. So in John 14, we see this question posed by one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas. And this is what Thomas, looking at Jesus, asks him. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. We don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? How many of us have that question on our hearts? No matter what season of life you may be in, and what circumstances you might be in, there might be this cry out of your heart that's uh, towards Jesus that's saying, Lord, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're up to. How can I know the way? It's such a common experience for many of us. I was having a conversation with someone in their 20s recently. They're just saying, oh man, it feels like my 20s is just year after year of confusion and aimlessness. Um, sometimes it feels like we're, we're Bilbo and the, the band of dwarves in Mirkwood. When we go off path, we have no idea where we're going. We have to kind of climb up a tree just to see and get some navigation to find a landmark. And Jesus' response to this sort of um, disorientation from Thomas, it's equal parts confounding and comforting. He says this to Thomas, I am the way the truth, and the life. It's one of the most loaded statements in all of Scripture. And so Jesus' assertion is that no matter where we find ourselves, whether it be in the valley of shadow and death or green pastures, 
He is the only guide worth following. He is the only leader that we walk behind. He is the good guide. And so Jesus, he doesn't give us any direction other, to, other than to himself. That is what he says. I am the way. And the good news is that he is all we will ever need. As we read Psalm 23, we can't help but notice that the writer, the psalmist, feels the same way. So he, he feels God close, his rod and staff in hand. God is the good guide who leads us to life. Uh, Larissa and I, my wife, on a recent trip, we were on a train from Germany to Italy, and it was like muggy, warm. It was a 12-hour travel day. Um, and so we were in the train uh, waiting to hear from our Airbnb host in Italy. And for those of you who have ever traveled, you know that um, it's really comforting to know that um, whether it be a hotel or someone you're staying with or an Airbnb expects you. Um, so I'm, I, for days I've been trying to reach out to our Airbnb host and I'm hearing nothing. It's just radio silence. I'm being ghosted. And so as we're traveling, the anxiety is starting to build. It's the day of. We're supposed to check in that afternoon. And we're on a muggy train from Germany to Italy. And so we find ourselves in this town uh, on the northwest coast of Italy. Still nothing. It's getting dark out. And so I, I pretty much say to Larissa, you know what? If we have to just show up to this person's place and just sleep at their front door like a cat, then I guess that's what we're going to do. And so uh, finally we get a cab and we end up at this little country home in the hills of Italy. And we arrive there to the exuberance and joy and celebration of the host. I'm so confused. Where was all this joy and exuberance before? And we arrive there and um, we don't speak any Italian. They don't speak any English. It's pretty much just like shouting and smiles and, you know, we're just relieved that we have a bed to sleep in for the night and they are just happy to see us there. And as we walk into the place, we are sweaty, our legs are tired, we're kind of taking a deep breath from all this anxiety of wondering whether we're going to sleep on the doormat. And so we walk in and they've got this sprawling patio that overlooks this small town in Italy. And it's warm, and there's a record spinning, playing romantic music. There's uh, fresh cold drinks for us on this patio. There's cheese, there's bread, everything that we could want. Uh, we're greeted with a warm hug from these hosts. We're told that, you know, essentially, our home is your home. And it was one of the most fabulous experiences I've ever had in my life, mainly because of the contrast with the amount of worry that we were experienced leading up to that. The story reminds me of God as the good host. Have any of you experienced a good host before? Someone in which you walk through their door and you feel like, wow, I belong. I feel so welcomed. God is the good host. And what we see here in Psalm 23 is not just God as good shepherd, 
or good guide, but we observe God as the good host, anointing his guest for the banquet and granting them perpetual hospitality. And so in Psalm 78, after leaving Egypt, the Israelites, they occasionally had this, this beef with God, uh, something against God. Um, and as they were wandering through the desert, they would, they would question him and they, they would say this. They would say, can God prepare a table in the desert? Can God, can God, can he, can he welcome us even here? Who is God that he could build a home for us in the middle of the wilderness? The end of Psalm 23 declares God as the good host who can prepare a table for us anywhere, even in the midst of our enemies. And so in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, in Old Testament times, it was customary for a host to provide protection and security uh, for a guest from their enemies while they were staying uh, at their home, while they, while they were welcoming them into their abode, into their banquet hall. And so here the psalmist writes that God is a perfect host who says, you are so welcome here. When we feel anxious, when we feel outnumbered, when we feel overwhelmed, God as the good host says, you are so welcome. And then we read, you anoint my head with oil. And so anointing, in many ways, it's synonymous in Hebrew with abundance. And so sometimes in church when we talk about, um, you know, such and, such and such has an anointing on their life. You know, uh, whether it be Haley, such an anointed worship leader, or Pastor Dave is such an anointed Bible teacher. What we're really saying is that there's an abundance of that gift on their life. And so that's what anointing is really synonymous with. And so... Uh, in Old Testament culture, it was customary for a host to, as a guest was entering their dining room or banquet hall, um, to pour oil or scented grease on their head before entering the banquet room. It's this sign of honor. It's giving face to um, this guest who is entering their home. So valuable in this culture. And so it's a culture of honor and giving face. And so then we go on to read, my cup overflows. That's what the psalmist writes. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And so in Hebrew, this word overflow, it's similar to, sat to saturate or to drench. And so uh, as well, it was custom to give uh, a wine cup as well as anointing them, to give them a wine cup as they entered into their home. And so it's, it's understood here not so much as a cup that was filled to overflowing, red wine all over your hand, as some might think. But as a host who's excellent and abundant wine, it, it is as if it saturates and drenches and soaks the one who drinks it. It's an action of welcome, an action of honoring the person, an action of love and appreciation for the guest who's being welcomed into their home. This is who God is. He is the good and perfect host. One who welcomes us, who saturates us and drenches us with his love and his honor 
and his appreciation. And so we read on, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. God as good host, he's never aloof. He's never absent. He's present. He's deeply committed to the one that he has welcomed. And so this word follow in Hebrew, it could also be translated as to, to pursue. And I find pursue is such an amazing word that captures God's heart for us. He pursues you. God pursues you with his goodness, with his mercy, and his love. And as good host, he views us not as a guest who is to be entertained just once and then leave. Or one who is occasionally allowed to enter the home. But as a guest who has a permanent and perpetual place at the table. It reminds me of uh, a man in the Old Testament named Mephibosheth. What an awesome name. Baby name suggestion. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was, we can find his story in 2 Samuel, he was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. And after Saul was ousted from the throne and Jonathan killed, Mephibosheth, who Jonathan's son, was, um, he was disabled and he was left on the streets. And so for years, Mephibosheth suffered alone on the streets, abused, overlooked, unwelcomed, cast aside. Someone who formerly was royalty, now on the streets. King David had just become king. And he asked a few of his servants, um, is there anyone still from Jonathan's line? And the servants went out and they scoured the city they uh, tried to get any leads they could, and they came back to David, and they said, you know, there is one. His name is Mephibosheth, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if he's your guy. And David says, bring him to me. And so Mephibosheth is brought to David's banquet hall. <clears throat> and this is what he says to Mephibosheth. He says, Mephibosheth. You will always eat at my table. He goes on to say in 2 Samuel, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons from that point on. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? We have a place at the table. Though we do not deserve it, we have a place at the table. Psalm 23 ends with this, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Never with fear of eviction, a place where our souls can find rest, renewal, faith and formation. God as good host, he's fully represented in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who honors the guests with the best wine for last. The one who gives face to the party hosts by keeping the party going. The one who talks of the Father's house with many rooms, a place prepared for us. The one who welcomes and eats with sinners. 
the one who washes the dirty feet of his dinner guests. We are welcomed by the good host. Worship team, I'd love to invite you guys back up. As we close, it always amazes me the stunning picture that Psalm 23 paints is of God as good shepherd and good guide and good host. And as the good shepherd, we can trust God to provide us with tender care, strength, and nourishment for our souls. That is what the good shepherd does for his sheep. And as the good guide, we can trust God to lead us as his companions through gloomy ravines and towards the right path. And as the good host, we can trust God to invite us in, welcome us, bless us, and keep us. That's what the good host does. And in Jesus, we see the God of Psalm 23 perfectly and ultimately embodied flawlessly perfected. And so a few questions I want to leave you with as we close. You know what? It says one, one, one. That's why, I don't know why it says that. They're all, they're all equally important. <laughs> the first question I'm going to ask you is this actually, and this is, I didn't even, I just thought of this now. But what, out of, out of God as good shepherd, good guide, and good host, which one resonates with you the most? First question I want to ask you, who do you go to for care if not the good shepherd? God may use many things, people, places to care for us. But we find our ultimate care under the good shepherd. Number two, where, who do you go to for leadership if not the good guide? Many of us are begging for guidance in our lives, yet we go to so many different place, places for that guidance. God is the good guide who never leads us astray. And finally, who do you go to for blessing, welcome, if not for the good host? Love to read Psalm 23 once more, and so if you're able, would you stand with me? And um, I want to invite you, just as you were at the beginning, to whether you want to just murmur it to uh, under your breath or whether you want to say it loud and proud. Uh, this is Psalm 23. Let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.